want to talk to you a little bit tonight about something that I think builds on where we've been for the last few weeks. Um, really enjoyed listening to Jenny's uh, her talk. I thought the video about the disabled guy and the, the Ironman marathon was was incredible on that, about giving ourselves away and and uh, practically being involved. And also, some of the things that Joel said, which I know stretch some of you, make you think, and that's all good. Because that's what's meant to happen. That's what Jesus did to people. So I want to talk to you a little bit about purpose perfection and, and partnership. Um, some of you know the answer to this, some of you don't. But, but where was Adam created? Where was he made? See, it's easy to say Adam was made, created in the world, but that actually does not help us to appreciate some of the very interesting factors that surround this. So I want to I read you something just from Genesis chapter 2. And, uh, and verse 4, it says, This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. So, so this is a summary of of what actually took place um, when the heavens and the earth were created. In verse 5 it says, No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. So we call that barrenness. If you imagine uh, looking at the earth as described here as being like scrubland and desert land, there's no shrubs, there's no plants of the field... Uh, and then it gives a reason, it says, For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. Two, two factors now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on those, but, but I find it fascinating that right at the beginning of creation, that we are being given reasons why uh, fruitfulness is not taking place. There are reasons why fruitfulness doesn't take place. The reasons why some of you, your life is not prospering and being fruitful. And he gave two reasons in the beginning. He said, one, because the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. That was something only God himself could do. But the other reason was there was no, no man to work the ground. So it seems right from the very beginning of creation, we are introduced to a concept that we would know as partnership. The fascinating thing of that concept is that it's talking about partnership between man and God. So he goes on to say, um, in verse 6, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So we get to verse 7 and God forms the man, he creates the man. But then what comes next is very interesting because it says, now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, okay, and there he put the man that he had formed. So here's the issue. It says God planted a garden, and it tells us where he planted the garden. It was in the east. Now, how many of you know if something's in the east, it's not in the west, and it's not in the north, and it's not in the south? It's just in the east. So God planted a garden in, a, in the east of this creation in a place called Eden, okay, so we know from that then that this garden was not filling the whole earth. It was just in a specific location in a place called Eden in the east. And it says there God put the man that he had formed. 
It says, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Now, how many of you know that if you have to take something from somewhere and put it somewhere, it wasn't where you're about to put it in the first place, right? So if God took the man and put him in the garden, then the man that God created was not prior to that in the garden, okay? So he's been made, but he's not in the garden. Okay, so what is it like outside the garden? No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. So what we have outside the garden is a barren landscape and we have the man created in the barren landscape, brought alive, so therefore Adam's first experience in life was not this massive, amazing, fantastic, glorious, wonderful, fruitful garden. It was a barren, desert, arid place with no plants and no shrubs. But God took him from that experience and puts him into the garden that God had created. So man's first experience was the barrenness. His next experience was God then exposes him to see the fruitfulness of the garden. Okay? So, I have a question on that. Did God create the world perfect? It's a very important question. Did God create the world perfect? I have another question for you. Did God create the Garden of Eden perfect? Okay, well, if the Garden of Eden was perfect, how come he needed a man to work it and take care of it? Because if something's perfect, nothing needs to be added. It's very interesting when you look at the previous chapters of the creation in Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, 10, 12, 18, 21, and 25, six verses that deal with the six days of creation. It says, when God finished that day of creation, whether it was separating the sky from the land and the seas and the animals, whatever it was, on six days, the first six days of creation, he says, and God saw that it was what? God saw that it was good. Now, he's good, perfect. So, so God only saw that what he had done was good. And then we get to the seventh day where God rests and, uh, and then God looks at all his creation and he says, and God saw that it was very good. So the best expression that we get of God's creation of the earth is that it was very good. Now, many of you know very good is not perfect. Good is not perfect, even very good is not perfect. So we are told that this world that God created was at its very best, only very good. Now this is important because we have to ask the question then, what do we mean by perfection? Because most of us assume God made the world perfect. But actually if you are supposed to be a believer in God 
and you therefore use the Bible as your inspiration, the Bible does not teach you that God made the world perfect. You cannot find it. You can go and look for the next 10 years if you wish. You will not find it. Very good was the best that you get expressed about the world that God created. So we have to ask the question then, if God created a perfect It didn't create a perfect world. Did God create perfect humans and was perfection the point? So we have to ask the question, what do we mean by perfection? What do we mean? There's a a, a verse in Matthew chapter 5, it's verse 48, that's a really scary verse. I always find it scary. And um, I haven't got time to talk about this, but but I, I grew up under what I call now half-verse theology. Which means that a lot of half-verses were quoted to me and they drew out of me a certain feeling about God and about the world and about myself and about life. For example, one of those verses was, and some of you will have heard this, some of you and you won't have, it is appointed unto man once to die from the book of Hebrews. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. And so I lived a lot of my life feeling that the whole issue of life was you're going to die and God is going to judge you and that's the point of life. What nobody told me is that there's a comma in there. How many of you know when there's a comma it means that's not the end of the statement? But the second half we didn't quote which was it's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment but so Christ was offered as a sacrifice for many to bring them to glory. Nobody told me the good news that was after the first bit that made me realize this is much more important than that first half. Now, again I haven't got time to to chase some of those down but but this scary verse if you take it on its own Um, could instill terror because it says in Matthew 5 verse 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect. That's scary, isn't it? If, if, if If the criteria of measurement for you before God is be perfect, how many of you think you're going to be able to achieve that? How many of you are striving to achieve that and have been striving to achieve that because you felt that God was going to measure you against perfection and that however far you fell short of perfection would be how much you lost out on the goodness of God in your life? Well, the problem is that our understanding of perfection means inherently flawless, right? We would define perfection as inherently flawless. It has no error and no flaws. It's inherently flawless. But evidently this is not God's definition or the biblical view. Again, Beth said about things that have been added and things that have been taken away that then put a whole new different spin even on the pressure that we feel in life. Inherently flawless is not the Bible's definition of perfection. How many of you know that the Bible that we read, the New Testament, was translated from the Greek? Okay? So it would be helpful if we understood what the Greek word that we translate perfection really means. And so being the wonderful person I am, I'm going to tell you. The Greek word is the Greek word teleos, which got nothing to do with, um, with starting an airline for those who are bright enough to understand that. 
The word teleos, which we translate perfection, means brought to completion. So to be perfect is to be brought to completion. To, fully, to be fully accomplished, to fully develop, to fully realize. Now, I want you to note that this is a word with movement in it, okay? Brought to completion. Not made complete, brought to completion. Fully accomplished. If you fully accomplished something, until it was fully accomplished, it wasn't accomplished at all. Fully developed, which means it wasn't fully developed before it's fully developed. Fully realized means it wasn't fully realized before it's fully realized. So there's a movement towards something in this Greek word of perfection that is not about inherently flawless, but it is about a movement towards something. So, I'm going to put that into context in this verse, because this verse 48, be perfect therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect, is at the end of some other things that Jesus said, and this is what he said. You have heard that it was said, this is verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Or in other words, now it means be perfect in him, be brought to completion, and become fully accomplished and developed in the same things that bring the Father to completeness. So perfection to God is when we do the same things that bring him to completeness. Or in other words, God showing kindness, God showing grace, God loving the unlovely, God sending rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, God putting the sun on righteous and unrighteous is what causes him in his being to come to completeness. He comes to completeness through what he does for others according to the heart of love that he has. So perfection to God is not a state of flawless perfection and, and flawless, uh, what was the word, inherently flawless, being inherently flawless. Perfection to God is when we come to do the things that make his heart glad and complete him. Now, in the Hebrew, which, of course, the Old Testament's written in the Hebrew, the word used for perfection means without defect and blameless. So you'll say, well, there you go, you see. Perfection really is to have no defects and to be blameless in everything. However, would you believe me if I said that in the Old Testament, that Hebrew word for perfection is never used to describe God? Ever. In the whole of the Old Testament... God is never described as perfect. Now, you can check me out. I'm not pulling the wool over your eyes. He is never described as perfect, nor is the world in the Old Testament ever described as being a perfect creation. The, the Hebrew word for, for perfection, this without defect and blameless, is used to describe God's works. It's used to describe God's ways. 
that they are without defect and blameless. It's even used to describe the law because it says the law of the Lord is perfect or without defect and blameless. Now, again, there are explanations on that, but it's used about all those things and and some other stuff. The only time it's really used about a person is fascinating because the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs is a love poem that was written by Solomon that is actually an image and a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, the king and, and the bride. And the only person who's ever called perfect in the whole of the Old Testament, is the one who is loved by this imaginary king in the Song of Solomons who talks about his beloved being perfect. And that's a picture of the church to Christ. So God is more interested in seeing you as perfect than he is promoting himself as perfect, which is fascinating because we're anything but perfect. But through his eyes, because perfection to him is not this flawless Uh, uh, this flawless, blameless, absolute, unmoving thing, inherent thing, God is able to see perfection in us. So it poses a big question as to why God is not described as being perfect, why his world is not described as being perfect. If the primary standard of measurement and accomplishment is perfection, then there's only one way things can go from there. So here's the problem. If you believe God in his perfection made the world perfect, that nothing was required to bring completion, then there's only one way you can go. And that's down. You see, there is a doctrine that is partly true in the Christian belief system called the fall. Which is all about the fact that because God was perfect and because he created man perfect, when something happened, the only thing that could have happened is that they fell from perfection. But what if they weren't perfect in the first place? What if it wasn't perfection that they fell from? It means then the objective is not to try and make them perfect again, which we can then confuse the issue of what this business was all about. So so we have to find a way to explain, because we believe God is perfect and he made the world perfect, that we have to then explain the only thing that can possibly happen. So we then create a whole belief system called the fall, which incidentally, if I said to you now, go and find a concordance, go and do a Bible search, and put in your search column, the fall, guess what? You're not going to find it. Because the Bible doesn't talk about the fall. Now, it talks about many things, but you see, what I'm trying to get through to you is that our concepts of perfection cause us then to have to develop belief systems that are trying to return us to perfection, and the problem is then we miss the point, because you think, most of you, that Christianity is about you being returned to perfection, but it never was and it still isn't. 
And see, because of that then, we think that the message of Christianity is to challenge the imperfections of people in our world and to be God's policeman to say, you just need to know you're not perfect. You just need to know you're really wrong. You just need to know you've fallen from God's state. And unless that's fixed, God won't love you. And so out of all that comes this issue that that God has to be a severe God because if the measurement is perfection, then even in our belief of what we believe God did to save us from our imperfection, which is the sacrifice of Jesus, if our love for him and our sacrifice for him and our attitude towards him isn't perfect, then we can still find ourselves under condemnation and under judgment. So there's no way you're going to find that it talks about that kind of perfection. So the question would be, why didn't God make the world perfect? Well, there are a couple of very simple reasons for that. One is that the creation of humanity would have been pretty pointless. If God created a perfect earth, perfect world, and perfect people... What's the point? Where do you go from there? God says, I need to do something. I'll make the earth and I'll make it perfect and I'll make humanity, I'll make them perfect. And then God's bored. It's like, well, what do we do now? Because then you have to deal with scriptures like we read in in, in Genesis 3 and verse 15 that says God put Adam in the garden to work the ground, to tend it and take care of it. So, so you then have issues like, did God really just want a gardener to attend his latest project? And why do you need a gardener to attend your latest project if your project is perfect? Then the gardener's pointless, the project's pointless, and God has to move on to say, I'll do something else because it's all just perfect anyway. So I've said all that just just because I want you to bring you to this point. What if perfection wasn't the standard? What if the point of all this was not God showing how perfect he is and how perfect he creates things and how perfect you have to be to be part of the perfect God who creates things perfectly? What if that wasn't the point? What, What if... Partnership was the standard by which God measures perfection. Because everything we've read has suggested without partnership there is no completeness. God made the man in a barren place. He puts him in the garden to tend it and to work it. Why is he doing that? To learn the skills of fruitfulness that exist in the garden that God has created for a purpose so that he can take that skill of the fruitfulness he has learned in what God has created and transform the world in which he was formed to look like the world that God showed him, that God had created. So that as Jesus said, the kingdom of God comes and his will is done where? Here on earth like it is in heaven. Here in the barren world like it is in Eden. We have a completely different point. The point is partnership is what God perceives as perfection. Perfection. 
So what if partnership is the standard by which God measures perfection and that your measurement today is not on you being inherently flawless but is on your determination to be in partnership with God? What if relationship was more important to God than creationship? That's a word I invented that one, Jen. What if relationship was more important to God than creationship? And his creationship was only to make an opportunity for relationship. And that somehow this will blow your mind, that somehow the God of heaven is incomplete without partnership. That the only thing that defines perfection for him is partnership. Now you say, well, well, that seems a bit far-fetched. Okay, isn't it fascinating that in the Bible we are introduced to a God who is three? And three who are one. Do you say which one's God? Because we're introduced to the Father, we're introduced to the Son, and we're introduced to the Spirit. The son Jesus was, before he was called Jesus, was the word in heaven. John chapter 1 tells us in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Without him nothing was made that has been made. But the word became flesh and lived among us. Father, son, spirit in creation. The literal word for in the beginning God is actually wrong in all of our Bibles. Because it should say in the beginning God's with an S created the heavens and the earth. Because the Hebrew word there is plural not singular. Now the reason it says God is to stop us being confused and thinking that you know like Mount Olympus we have you know Zeus and Apollos and all these guys putting their heads together to create the world. So it says God to keep it simple for us. But if you were reading it in Hebrew, you would be forced to understand that this God has many aspects to who he is. We know them as Father, Son, and Spirit. So therefore, in order for God to be perfect, he has to have partnership. Without partnership, is not perfect. Therefore, God's definition of perfect is partnership. So God is perfect in his partnership. Without his partnership, God is actually not perfect. Because each part of who he is is just as important as the other. So therefore, perfection is partnership, and without partnership, there is no perfection. So God makes man in his image and in his likeness for a reason. He says, the fellowship that I have, the partnership that I have, which is the perfection that I have, I want you to have an opportunity to share in that same perfection that is not being inherently flawless, but actually being in a relationship that is fruitful enough to change barrenness into life. Does that make sense? Because in God's eyes, partnership far exceeds perfection. So for all of you who think, I wish I didn't mess up, Good news for you. In God's eyes, partnership exceeds perfection. God says we can get through this together. Me and you. That's why Jesus consistently went on about, I'm in the Father, and the Father is in me. I only do what I see the Father do. The words that I speak are what the Father has spoken. All the time he's relating to this partnership, saying the power of this is in the partnership. So if that kind of power is in the partnership, 
of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, then he makes man in his image. Would it not be fair to say that God wanted to share that same level of creative power and energy with humanity, which is why he said to Adam, Adam, you work the ground and learn, son, something about what I'm showing you about my goodness, my kindness, my love, my generosity, my power. And then when you take that out with me helping you, things are going to change because God will send the rain, the man will work the ground, and God says fruitfulness will come. So the truth would be this, in God's eyes, partnership is perfection. It's interesting that when God had created man, Adam, and God looked at Adam, God said it's not good for man to be alone. What was that showing? That God saw Adam's need, even as a human, not the same as God, was for a partner. Why? Because... Perfection to God is partnership. So God said, I've got to make a partner for this human. And of course what happens is God creates the woman and brings her to the man because God realizes that all these levels of partnership are critical for creation. Now, it wasn't just that God was saying Adam needs a mate, as in a friend, a buddy, you know, somebody to chat with and watch TV on an evening. The words over Adam was to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue it, to rule over it. Now, I'm bright enough to know that if I didn't have Chris, I can't be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Now, I may be the most virile, capable example of male flesh in the universe. But how many of you know I would not have a chance to multiply, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, without partnership. God's trying to get something through to us right from the very beginning. That he is in perfection when he is in partnership and you're in perfection when you're in partnership. And when partnership works, the kind of perfection God is looking for emerges. Now that kind of perfection is not a legal statute, constitutional need about behavior. God's idea of perfection is when the barren becomes fruitful, when the dead thing comes to life, when, when nothingness produces somethingness, when chaos turns to order. God was trying to say to us, listen, I want you to share in this wonder of seeing those things happen through you. And it comes through partnership. So he made the man, brought it to the woman, Because Adam couldn't do what God had invited him to do without a partner. And God can't do what he can do without a partner. So I want to tell you one other thing before before we, we shut down for tonight. Adam gets involved in an act of stupidity. We've all done it. We've all been stupid. God says don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil um, because you can't handle living life through that lens of knowledge. And I still find when I talk to people, particularly in churches and people outside the churches, when you say to them that, that God never wanted right and wrong and good and evil to be the measurement for life, people look at you like, what? What are you 
Which planet are you from? That's what God is all about, right and wrong and good and evil. But, but you see, that was the tree that God said, I don't want you to eat from that tree because when you eat of it, you're going to die. It will kill you. And the problem is that any system, politically or religious, that is built on rights and wrongs and goods and evils, inevitably, and without necessarily the intention, but inevitably always produces death. It doesn't work. God said it doesn't work. I've done enough teaching about the alternative to that that I'm not going to chase that down tonight. If you're interested, ask me, I'll talk to you. But when Adam eats from the tree, something happened. You can read it in the Bible. It says that, you know, certain curses began to happen. So, you know, it says the ground will produce thorns and thistles and, and by the sweat of your brow you will have to work and, and from dust you were taken and to dust that you will return. Now, I want you to notice something. God was not saying that you cannot produce fruitfulness. He was just saying it's going to be a lot harder now. And uh, when we try to be fruitful by a system of right and wrong and good and evil, it's not that we can't be fruitful, but it's a whole heck of a lot harder. And that's what a lot of you are experiencing. The difficulties of having a fruitful life and fruitful relationships and changing things fruitfully because we're trying to do it by rights and wrongs and good and evils. And that means we have judgments and condemnations and exclusions and rights and wrongs and who's in and who's out and who we like and who we don't like. Uh, and who can do what and who can't do what. And, and, and it just makes things a whole lot harder. What I'm trying to show you is that even in that situation, it wasn't that goodness couldn't come, but it was just goodness was going to come with a lot more difficulty attached to it. So what happens is God said, okay, I'm going to put the man out of the garden. Is what we think. It says he was expelled from the garden. So God says, right, okay, you've all done it with your kids. That's it, I'm done, out, go on, clear off, out you go. Pushes them out of the garden, went into the barrenness, okay, outside the garden. And um, that's when then we begin to imagine things that are not actually in the Bible because we thought it was all about being perfect rather than being in partnership. You see, Adam's expulsion from the garden was not a judgment, it was just a premature action brought on by Adam's choices. Some of you think the judgment of God was to put Adam out of the garden. Really? Where did you get that from? Where was Adam created? Outside the garden. What was it like? Barren. Do you really think that God's intention was to create an earth where one little corner of this earth was fruitful and the rest of it was a desert? Really? You really think that was God's intention? Okay, so if it wasn't God's intention, how is this, this barren bit, going to become that, the fruitful bit? That's where man comes in. Because there was no rain, and there was no man to work the ground. So, you see, God was always going to send Adam out of the garden. That was never going to be where he was intended to be. God was always going to send him out to change that stuff out there to look like this stuff in here. So it wasn't that Adam was thrust out into, like, the equivalent of hell. Adam was prematurely evicted 
from the garden, but I believe it was not so much a departure from the plan as it was an adjustment to the plan. Well, he wasn't really ready to send out there yet. I wanted him under the life of God and the partnership with me to think, right, God, let me out there, let me at that world, because I can do there what you've done here, because you've shown me how life comes. See, Eden was not Adam's heaven. Get that out of your head. It was simply an example of what could be produced when you're in partnership with God the Creator. Living forever in the Garden of Eden was not Adam's purpose. Adam's purpose was to take that forever life and transform the world. Transforming the world with the message of Eden was the purpose of Adam. Taking the fruitfulness of the garden and transforming the barrenness of the earth. So the perfection of partnership was so that this man who God had created could do in his world that God had given him what God had done in his worlds and in the earth that he had created. Do you realize that once you come into right partnership with God, that you can change every barren place to a fruitful place? That you can turn chaos into order? That what seemed to be dead can be brought to life? And that the multiplication that was part of the life cycle of the garden because the trees produce fruit and the fruits have seed and the seed produce trees which produce fruit which have seed in it. How many of you know there's more seed in a fruit than for a single tree? So multiplication takes place. So God was saying, if you catch this partnership, a multiplying factor is added into your life that goes beyond the one plus one equals one. You get into the realms of a multiplying factor that says the life of God transforms and changes. You see, it all begins when I come into right partnership with believing God is who he says he is, my father, and that I am who he says I am, and that is his son, immediately that multiplying factor takes place and something changes in my heart. And when I bring that out into life, the same power exists in me. There is nothing that you face in life that cannot be transformed and cannot be changed by this grace of the partnership that comes when you are willing to realize the objective of my life is not I have to be perfect, inherently flawless, but I have to be perfectly in partnership with the one who loves me. What I love about that partnership is it's not based on acts of achievement. It's actually based on receiving. It's based on receiving love and responding to that love and working from that. So this is my last thought. When Adam was put out of the garden, the question is, was he put out of fellowship with God? See, I was always taught that, that when Adam ate from the tree, that his fellowship with God was broken. The problem is, since then, I've read the Bible. I read the Bible without reading it through the lens of what I was told it was telling me. And if you go back and read the Bible, you see that that God's still talking to Adam. 
God's still talking to the man. He's still talking to Cain. He's still talking to Abel. There's still this interaction of help, okay? So we've made things a lot harder for ourselves, but God hasn't suddenly been removed himself because we made one mistake. That's it. I'm never talking to you again. You'll have no connection with me until Jesus comes. I can't speak to you. That just simply is not the truth. And there are many ways that God shows his kindness and his love and helps them to accept themselves in the context of his love. But if you read it, he was put out of the garden, but he was not put out of fellowship with God. Your issue simply tonight is a restoration of fellowship with God. That's your issue. And it's what God desires and it's what he's looking for. Okay? So let me give you this last thing in Genesis 3 verse 23. And 24, it says, So the Lord God sent the man out, or banished him from the Garden of Eden, to work the ground from which he had been taken. That's why he was sent out. That's the reason. Why is he going to work the ground? Because he's still going to have a shot at changing it into what he had seen in the garden. Verse 24, After he drove the man out, listen to this, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Remember it said, here's the world, and in the east there was the garden. Well, in the east of the garden was the tree of life. So the sword that's swirling, this is picturesque, to stop him having access to the tree of life is only in the east of the garden, which means that it's not stopping him coming into the garden. It's just stopping him getting to the tree of life, which was a grace because if in the state he was in, he had this burden of living forever, he wouldn't have been happy, you and I wouldn't have been happy, nobody would have been happy because he didn't want him to live forever in that condition. So there was a grace that came on his life to say that outside of right relationship, it's not going to help you to be able to eat of the tree of life and live forever. Sometimes death is a grace on our lives. What am I trying to show you from this? That the idea that he was banished from the garden under the anger of God and never allowed again to go into what God had created but was in this barren, horrible place until judgment would come or until Jesus turned up and then just maybe God might then be able to not be angry with him and not be mad with him is not what the Bible says. It says he was simply kept from the where the tree of life was. That simply means this, that even in the condition that Adam was, having been stupid, he still had access to the garden to see the fruitfulness of God, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, and still had the opportunity to come into relationship with that reality and reproduce that in the earth. I want you to know this is good news. Yes, our stupidity has consequences. But you need to know that our stupidity has not cut us off from the love and the kindness of God. It's not cut us off from him allowing us to see the fruitfulness that can be ours in our life. And all of the scripture is calling us to one thing. It's not calling us to perfection as in, in, in faultless, inerrant, flawless behavior, but it's calling us to partnership with God. What I love about that is whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, that is not the factor that mitigates your acceptance. 
If it was about inherent flawless behavior, then it would, because we'd say, well, I'm worse than him, but I'm not as bad as her, and I haven't done that. But because it's not about that, the arms of God open to all of us to say, it's about partnership. I just want to partner with you. Even in some of the stupid things that you have done, I can fix those and heal those in your life. There's forgiveness for that stuff if you feel guilt. There's removal of the shame that might be in your life. But if you will just come into partnership with me, all that barrenness, all that fruitlessness can be transformed so that you see what Jesus said when he said, I want you to pray your kingdom come your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. What was he saying? What I wanted to happen from the garden in the earth, which incidentally, to my last reckoning, actually has taken place. This earth is beautiful. You see that stuff of, of Yellowstone National Park? The geysers, the trees, the mountains, the snow, absolutely gorgeous. Something happened to cause what was happening in the garden to happen in this world. Somehow, it worked. And the somehow is still there for your life and for my life, for what's going on in here and what's going on in here and what goes on in here in our relationships. Because God says the key to all this is not in that flawless perfection, but it's actually in the relationship. And so my challenge to you today is to open your heart, open your spirit, open your mind, and be willing to come into partnership with the God of heaven, the God who loves you, the God who is for you, and the God who will transform the barrenness into fruitfulness in Jesus' name. All right, let's just pray. Father, as we're here in your presence, you see every heart, you see every life, I just pray right now that hands and hearts and minds will just grasp onto that partnership that you are so desperate for and that you bless so immensely. We just come to receive from you right now. Thank you that nothing that we have done has caused you not to want to be in partnership with us, but still your heart cry is. You stand there waiting and wanting and longing just to be involved as a partner in our lives and us to be a partner with you so that the same fellowship that you have in yourself can flow into us. So as we receive that tonight, Lord, bring peace, bring understanding, bring revelation, and bring the hope and confidence to know that the barren place can be turned to the fruitful place, that the broken things can be turned into mended things, that the empty things can be filled, and that nothing can be changed into something because of the power of your presence in partnership with us. We bless you, we honor you, we receive it tonight. We thank you for its reality. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're done. Bless you. Enjoy the curry. Get yourself painted or whatever, and uh, we'll see you on Wednesday.